such a blessing to have you all with us, and especially those of you who are newer, I want to say a, a special welcome to you, and a thank you for worshiping with us, being with us. I know I met a few of y'all on the way in this morning, and if I didn't get to on the way in, I'd love to on the way out. I'd love to, to shake your hand and, um, and thank you for being here, and we would love collectively as a church to do that as well, and so uh, the, the easiest way uh, for, to allow us to be able to do that is by filling out one of those New to West Hills cards in your bulletins there. Um, you should have gotten those on your way in little uh, newcomer card, and uh, just so you won't feel left uh, or, or, or singled out, uh, on the back of those cards, we uh, print a space for prayer request and also for, for sermon application. Um, if the Lord stirs you um, to share, you know, and to write down and, and make tangible this morning how he's calling you to respond uh, to his word this morning, uh, even if you're not new, you can fill out on the back. We'd love to know how we can pray for you as a church, um, for, for all of us, new and old. And so uh, if, if everybody would fill out a card, that would be wonderful and help the newcomers not feel singled out. And then uh, if you are new, you can f uh, put those uh, at the info bar or at the, at the offering box on the way out. But if you take it straight to the info bar, they can get you set up with uh, a, a nice West Hills uh, travel coffee cup. I've been calling them coffee mugs, but I didn't realize we upgraded. We got these real slick, fancy looking, I don't even have one. It's like limited edition. So um, if, if you want one, you got to give us your, your contact info. And I promise, you know, we're only going to email you to, to, to thank you for being here. And we won't bug you beyond what you want to be bugged. But if you'd like to hear more about what we have going on at the church, get plugged in. We'd love to do that. Um, let me ask you this morning, have you ever broken something so bad that you had absolutely no idea how you were going to fix it. No plan for fixing it. It is uh, fitting that my father is here this morning in town on the front row because all of the examples that I could think of from my own childhood growing up <clears throat> involved you, dad. <clears throat> there was uh, the time that I broke our outdoor uh, patio glass tabletop, uh, testing my accuracy throwing gravel from our balcony. And my plan was to lie uh, in, you know, the like 0.8 seconds that I had before my mom came shooting out the back door to, to inquire what had happened um, and probably caught me red-handed. Uh, I, I think I was too scared to even think to, to drop the gravel. And uh, so I just said, like, I have no idea, you know, I was just out here admiring this gravel, and uh, <laughs> the table down there just, just shattered out of nowhere, it was bizarre, and uh, her response was, we'll deal with this when your father gets home, we all knew what that meant, I don't remember how many licks I got for that one, Dad, I don't know if you remember, uh, there was, then, then there was the time that my buddy Will Woods and I were playing indoor soccer in our garage, and we knocked loose one of those long uh, fluorescent light bulb tubes like we've got in Joy Hall downstairs. Except imagine that falling from about 15 feet onto sheer concrete. You can imagine how many pieces it was in, glass everywhere. And I think our plan that time was that we would sweep it up uh, before Dad got home or anybody noticed. Uh, or Mom came downstairs and we just replaced the light on our own and fortunately dad came home uh, before we could get his ladder out and kill ourselves probably trying to replace the bulb falling ourselves from 15 feet 
And I, I don't know if you remember, I still remember watching the garage door go up and dad start to try and pull in and then seeing us there with brooms in hand, <laughs> soiled pants. Uh, I think he actually showed me grace that time. Somehow I only ever managed to break one bone growing up, same concrete basement floor, and it was uh, just after we had moved in, and I had the great idea, um, super slick, of, of inventing a game called Slippery Basketball that you had to play in socks. Um, and mind you, this was back in the days before parents cared about their kids and wrapped us in bubble tape. Um, bubble wrap, yeah, and so uh, I was going up to dunk on my kindergarten girlfriend, Stephanie Donovan, and uh, in my defense, she was just as athletic as any of the boys in class. Uh, but speaking of defense, she went up uh, to defend and, and block my, my dunk, my shot, and uh, I still maintain she fouled me. But in any case, I came down with a broken ankle, and that time my plan was just to tell mom. You know, so through tears, I, I tell mom, I, I, I need to go to the hospital. And her, her response that time was actually the same. We'll deal with this when your dad gets home. Uh, because dad was a physician. She wanted a second opinion before uh, she shelled out the $20 for the, the ER copay. Uh, this was back, again, in the days of rub some dirt on it. So um, I think you'd go to jail these days for, for doing that. But uh, thanks for saving my leg, dad, is the moral of the story. But, but the reason I share these stories is uh, because this is more or less the situation we find ourselves in this morning where we pick up the story of Scripture, where we left off uh, last week in week three. This morning is week number four of our fall sermon series, The Essentials, and we're examining the 11 most foundational truths in the Christian faith as articulated in our church statement of faith. And I'm not sure if you've noticed yet or not, but there is something of a progression to these truths that essentially retells the story of the Bible as we work our way through them. And so we started in week one with the Bible, and I told you that our belief that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God is really the first axiomatic truth in Christianity. Uh, it's kind of the, the building block, basic building block that just has to be accepted on, on, on faith alone. But from there, we begin to build sort of this argument from Scripture for, what, for our belief system and so we pondered in week two, God, because that's how the Bible begins in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God, right? And last week, we continued the story with core doctrine number three on humanity, because shortly after meeting God in Genesis 1-1, we meet humans in Genesis 1-26, who are made in God's very good image to reflect his glory, but by chapter 3, we discovered human, uh, humankind has already violated that image by disobeying God, rejecting his ways, and inviting sin into the world, instead breaking the shalom, the wholeness and beauty and peace that God had intended to characterize not only humanity, but all of creation. And now, because of it, the world, people, and everything is broken. Millions of pieces on the floor, and it's up to God to fix it. And so that's where we pick up the story this morning with essential truth, number four, God's plan. And I know what some of you are wondering, but no, we will not be singing any Drake this morning as our closing hymn. 
If you're too Christian to get that reference, Drake is a secular artist. That means you won't hear him on Joy FM. And, uh, but he's got a single, God's Plan, with over 1.8 billion plays on Spotify. But let me ask you this morning, what would you do? Let's, let's talk more about plans. What would you do if you were God and you had created this wonderful, holy, good world created people in your own holy good image and given them everything that they needed to flourish and thrive and given them only one rule and within a chapter of giving it they've already broken it would you shrug it off like eh it was just a silly piece of fruit you know who really cares i guess it's not that big a deal No, God loves us too much for that. He hates sin too much and what it does to us. He wants so much better for us than that, than lives filled with with darkness, disobedience, defiance. And so would you just scrap humans altogether and go with robots instead? Pre-program some robots to give you the glory you deserve. Circumvent the whole free will problem all the risks that you run with giving humans free will. Turns out free will is a pretty important part of what it means to be created in God's image. And God gets more glory when we willingly choose him rather than a robot simply following its code. Moreover, God loves us. God desires a relationship with humans. And relationships kind of necessitate that vulnerability, that, that risk-taking that comes with love, with opening yourself up to someone with free will who can choose to reject you. And so what does God do? What is God to do? Well, we're going to see this morning what God does, and he does something really interesting, really brilliant, Predictably, I suppose. He is God after all. But also really unexpected. This is not a plan that you or I would have ever come up with, could have ever come up with. And yet, it's a beautiful plan. And so what I want to do this morning is three things. First, we're going to read Scripture together, our Scripture passage for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10, through if you want to Turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one of those as well at the info bar. And I will invite those of you who so desire to respond this morning by affirming your belief in God's plan as revealed in his word and as articulated in our church statement of faith. If you're just visiting us this morning, maybe you're you're even an unbeliever, unchurched, whatever, please don't feel pressured in any way to respond We're truly just glad you're here, glad you're exploring the Christian worldview for yourself. And second, I'm going to try and summarize God's plan and really the rest of the Bible for you in just one sentence. No big deal. Summarize the Bible in a sentence. And then we're going to spend most of our remaining time tracing and surveying God's plan in a 30,000-foot view as it unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture And then thirdly, and in closing, I want to leave you with just a few reflections 
on what makes this strategy for saving, for fixing, rescuing, restoring the world so beautiful and why we ought to marvel at not only the plan, but the God behind it, okay? So I would invite you to stand with me as you're able, again, out of respect for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the ESV. Words will be on the screen in front of you. Unless I, until I decide to stop doing that, I had to confront Bob Deerberg. Taking his Bible back to his car after Bible study this morning, I said, what are you doing? You, you need your Bible in here, Bob. He said, well, you're going to put the words on the screen anyway. I said, how do you know? I, you trust me way too much. You need to have your Bible when you come to church. He's not the only one. I'm just calling him out. All right. Hear the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, how will you now respond to God's mercy? We believe that from before the beginning of time, God determined to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe, language, people, and nation to become a people for his own possession. In his grace, God justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies all who repent and believe in Jesus, trusting in him as their Redeemer, Savior, and Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for who you are and for your plan of redemption. For all of creation, for all of humanity, and on the individual personal level, for every person who will repent of their sins and trust in your son Jesus for their forgiveness and salvation. God, if there is anyone here this morning who does not know Jesus as their Redeemer, Lord, and Savior, who has not trusted in the rock, the living stone, and is thus in jeopardy of being crushed by it, I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, would you give us eyes to see would you give us ears to hear and hearts to experience the love 
of God in Christ Jesus, our Savior, through your word. God, I pray this for our good and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that I don't like about our church's statement of faith and most churches' statements of faith is that in retelling the story of Scripture, we essentially skip over 99% of the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 4 through Malachi chapter 4 mostly gets left out of our condensed summary of the Bible. We sometimes refer in the church to the four acts of the biblical story, four chapters of, of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and final restoration. As the story is summarized, God created in Genesis 1 and 2. Then humanity sinned and fell from grace in Genesis chapter 3. But God sent Jesus to redeem the world in the New Testament. And one day Jesus is going to return and make all things new, as foretold in the book of Revelation but we're really not sure what to do with the rest of the Old Testament. And so a lot of Christians just ignore it. Don't even bother to ever flip there in their Bibles. And a lot of pastors even encourage it. Evangelical pastors. Andy Stanley, pastor of the fourth largest church in America, says that Christians need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. But the Bible itself says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. And so here is my humble suggestion for what we ought to do with the Old Testament, the creation, fall, redemption, restoration outline. I think it's good. But we need to understand the rest of the Old Testament as redemption. Okay? God didn't just waste 39 chapters of his inspired word. It's redemption, part one. And then the New Testament is redemption part two, version 2.0, intended to, to just blow our minds even more about how amazing this God, this redemptive God is. But that's why I've got two bullet points in my sermon outline there for you in your, in your bulletins. And I want to go ahead and, and fill in those blanks right up front and give you the summary of the Bible that I promised you. Here is God's plan for fixing the world. Ready? God calls and consecrates a people unto himself in order to bless all peoples through them. None of y'all are Christians because nobody said amen. You're too busy writing. Let me try that again. God calls and consecrates a people for himself in order to bless all peoples through them. That's God's good plan of redemption for the world and for you. Formerly, in the Old Testament, God called and consecrated a people, Israel, unto himself in order to bless all peoples through them. And today, God calls and con consecrates a people, the church, for himself in order to bless all peoples through them. In our passage for this morning, Peter is focused primarily on today, on the, the, the latter of those two, on God's new covenant people, the church. But if we look closer... Peter offers us here just a ton of hints that he views the church as the modern-day fulfillment of God's plan of redemption that was started long before 
the church was ever born. In the Old Testament, with God's Old Covenant people, Israel. For one thing, Peter directly quotes from the Old Testament here, three separate passages at that, Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, verse 22, and Isaiah 8, 14. He quotes them in verses 6, 7, and 8, respectively, because he wants us to see the continuity in God's plan through all the scriptures, from Old Testament to New Testament. Just consider with me all of the Old Testament language and imagery that we find in these seven short verses in 1 Peter 2. It says, Peter identifies Jesus as the living stone in verse 4, referring to a prophecy from Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 45. Jesus is the stone who will break into pieces all earthly kingdoms and rulers and usher in God's messianic kingdom and reign. Jesus is called chosen and precious in verse 4. That's the exact language that God uses of his people Israel when he calls them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured, precious possession. Then Peter says in verse 5 that the church has now become a spiritual house. That's a direct allusion to the Old Testament temple. God's house where his spirit resided with his people. They're also called a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. Verse 5, that was God's appointed means of consecrating his people in the Old Testament. By the way, to consecrate means to make or declare sacred, to set apart or dedicate for God's service. Remember that, okay? If you need an easier mnemonic way to remember it, it's a big concept for this morning. To consecrate is to purify for a purpose, okay? To purify for a purpose. That's exactly what the priests did for the people of Israel in the Old Testament by offering sacrifices daily on their behalf. The entire book of Leviticus is devoted to it. When a person's sin became ritually unclean for any reason, in any way, they had to be cleansed, purified through the blood of an animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. It simultaneously reminded that person that because of their sin, they deserved to be the one on the altar, that the penalty of sin, for sin against a perfect holy God really is death. But it also absolved the person of that sin and guilt because God allowed the death price to be paid in their place by the animal instead on the altar. It's just one of the ways that God used mechanisms, vehicles for sanctifying, consecrating, purifying his people in the Old Testament. Another crucial way was through circumcision. Peter doesn't uh, d directly reference it here, but he calls the church the new chosen race. Being a Jew wasn't and isn't just a religion. It's also an ethnicity, a race. And the sign that God had given his people of their having been chosen, consecrated, set apart unto him as a race was circumcision in Genesis 17. We saw that when we studied through Genesis together this last year. Peter calls them a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Those are direct references to Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, where God renews his covenant with Israel after Moses leads them out of Egypt. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, it's a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Then he call, Peter calls them a people for God's own possession. Direct quote again, Deuteronomy 7, 6. 
And then Peter clarifies that the church was called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And once we were not a people, but now you are God's people. Those are references, again, direct references to messianic prophecies from Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And Hosea 2 verse 23 On that day, God says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Over and over and over again, Peter is inviting us, perhaps requiring us, to take a look back in the Old Testament if we are going to fully appreciate all of the claims that he's making here of the church, God's new covenant people. If you ignore your Old Testament, you're never going to live into all that God has for you as a Christian. And if you were with us last year for our sermon series through Genesis, you'll know that the most important passage of all from the Old Testament about God's calling and consecrating a people unto himself in order to bless all peoples through them is Genesis chapter 12. Right off the bat, God's plan, he gets, gets, gets to business with his plan right in the wake of the fall, Genesis chapter 3. God, in his loving patience, he continues to endure with humanity's downward spiral into sin for another nine generations, another thousand years with their their lengthy lifespans, until finally God cannot bear to watch his people continue to hurt themselves and dishonor him so egregiously defile God's name and so he sends in his mercy he sends the flood in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 to mitigate the spread of this virus this cancer that is sin and then chapters 10 and 11 were mostly genealogy but in Genesis chapter 12 we see God initiate this new plan of redemption I say new plan because it's new for us in Genesis 12 But scripture makes it clear this was no new plan for God. God had had this plan in mind before the foundation of the world. Isaiah 46.10, I am God, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, like eternity past, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I will accomplish my plan. This plan has been in place from ancient times. When we get to the New Testament... Redemption version 2.0, Ephesians 1.4 is going to tell us that God chose us, chose the church in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's amazing. If If you're in Christ this morning, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Before we even broke things, God already knew how he was going to fix them. And we begin to see his great rescue operation takes shape with a man named Abram, Father Abraham, father of the nation of Israel, God's Old Testament chosen people. Abram is critical to God's plan. Why? Not because Abram was righteous. Actually, he was a a godless, polytheistic pagan when Yahweh called him. Not even because Abraham was all that faithful. We discovered in our walk through Genesis that Abraham was actually pretty faithless for most of his life. From chapters 12 through 21, 
He mostly distrusted God and proved himself faithless. He finally got it right at the age of 125. Better late than never. When it mattered most, with his son Isaac on the altar. Test of his faith. All right, Abraham. It's all been building to this. Your whole life, he proved faithful. But the reason that God chose him 50 years prior wasn't his righteousness, not even his faithfulness. Why did God choose Abraham, why is Abraham so crucial to God's plan? I'll tell you why. It's because God is gracious. Grace means undeserved favor. There's nothing in Abraham that made him crucial to God's plan. God didn't need Abraham, but he chose him in his mercy and his grace for his own good purposes. God chooses and uses even unbelieving pagans like you and me and Abraham for his own good purposes. And what is God's good purpose, his plan as revealed to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12? It's this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you catch it? Did you catch all three steps of God's plan there? First, God calls him. Literally, God says, Abram, and talks to him. He calls him. Next, God consecrates him. He sets him apart for service to the Lord. He says, go from your country and from your kindred. He says, Abram, I'm going to separate you out from them, and you're going to be different from your polytheistic ancestors. I'm going to purify you for a purpose. I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. And and again, why am I going to do it? So that everyone will know how awesome Abraham is? No, It's so that the nations will know that Yahweh, Abraham's God, is awesome. That's why. That through Abraham and his descendants, others might come to know Yahweh and worship him for themselves. And thereby, all the families of the earth might be blessed. Abram and the nation of Israel is blessed in order to be a blessing to all the nations. That's the plan. That's the plan in a nutshell. God calls and consecrates in order to bless all the nations. And it's really a beautiful plan. And if we had a few extra hours, I would take you through the entire Old Testament and I would show you how God is working that plan on every page of Scripture, constantly reminding Israel of their gracious calling of their distinctive, distinguishing consecration and of their commissioned blessing that they're called to be to the world. But here's the problem with the plan. And let's make this clear up front. It's not God's problem any more than when I coach my daughter Ellery's soccer team. I've got a plan. The plan is simple, and it's a good plan. You run to the ball as fast as you can. 
you kick it as hard as you can toward that goal, the other goal, and then you run after it again and repeat. And if they happen to steal it at some point in there, you turn and you run and you beat them back in, in between our goal. And you stop them by any means necessary. And they don't give cards in kindergarten soccer. All right, this, this might not be the best plan, you know, if you're playing at SLU, Division I soccer. But for kindergarten, it's a good plan. So when they fail to execute the plan, that's not a reflection on the plan or the coach behind the plan. I'd like to say, in, in reality, uh, it, it might be a little bit, I, I might let them have a little too much fun in practice instead of working the plan, practicing the plan ad nauseum, but I'm trying to get them to come back next year for first grade soccer. But not God. Listen, there's not a lot of fun in the Old Testament. I don't know if you've read it. Uh, he, he's pretty much just working the plan all the time, sanctifying his people. He's all business, sanctifying his people constantly so that they can serve as a blessing and a witness to the nations. But the problem is not with God, it's Israel's problem. The problem they have is that they have a really hard time staying sanctified, staying consecrated, purified. See, the most important means vehicle that God had given his people of being consecrated in the Old Testament was his law. 613 laws in the Old Testament in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, which means law. It's the most sacred, important part of the Tanakh for Jews still to this day. A good Christian might have the top 10 memorized. A good Israelite would have had all 613 memorized. But the issue was that no Israelite could seem to manage to keep all 613. They could have, theoretically. God didn't make his law impossible for us to keep. The Israelites just failed to. And we failed to. Jesus summarized the whole law in just two commands. And not only that, he said the law and the prophets. Jesus summarized the entire Old Testament in just two commands. You know what they are. What are they? Love God and love people. It's simple, right? Simple to understand. How simple is it to do? And yet it's a good law. He gives it to us for our own good and for the good of the world. His commandments are not burdensome, 1 John tells us. It's in our own best interest to keep the law, to love God and love others. This is what makes life work best if we live the way God has called us to. But time and time again, for 1,300 pages, 39 books, 2,000 years, from Abraham to Jesus, Israel failed time and time again to love God and love people. And those were God's two most frequent, frequently recurring indictments against his people, against Israel, was idolatry and injustice. Failing to love God with all their hearts, loving lesser things more than they loved him, idolatry, and injustice, failing to love others and treat them the way that they should, made in the image of God. And so after 2,000 years of even more loving patience and bearing with Israel in her sin, 
of graciously devising and delivering all manners of sub-plans within the plan in order to try and help Israel accomplish her, her, her continued consecration. Remember, God, God gave them his covenant promises. They failed to trust him. And so God allowed his people to be chastened in Egypt that they might glory in his deliverance, his salvation, but instead they begged him to return to slavery. And so God gave them his law, they broke it. He gave them bread from heaven, they, they grumbled. He gave them a land flowing with milk and honey, and they fell in love with the milk and the honey, and they forgot about the God behind it. God gave them himself. He offered himself to serve as their good and living king. They rejected him and asked for a king like all the other nations instead. And so he sent them the prophets to call them back to purity and holiness, but they ignored God's messengers, sometimes even killed them. And so after 2,000 years, God finally decided on a new plan. Except here's the thing. It wasn't a new plan. It was the same plan all along. God is still going to call people, still going to consecrate people so that he might still bless all peoples. It's not a new plan. God is not a man that he should change his mind, Numbers 23, 19. It's the same old plan, but the difference is how he calls us, how he consecrates us, and how he blesses others through us. Friends, the difference is Jesus. And Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus makes the plan work. Long ago, God's call was external because God was external. Abram was here. God was here. And God said, come over here, Abram. Follow me. In the wilderness, God traveled ahead of his people via cloud in the day, via fire in the night to guide his people, beckoning them on. Come on, y'all, keep up. God spoke in a southern accent. I don't know if you knew that. Later, God's presence would reside in the Ark of the Covenant, and then even later in the temple. And God commanded his people, hey, come to me three times a year during these set pilgrimages. You need, you're going to journey over here to Jerusalem, to the temple, to me. But friends, in Jesus, God came to us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And because of Jesus, God's call is now even more internal than that, even more personal, because now Jesus' own Spirit, the Holy Spirit, lives inside you and me. Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Jesus Christ is in you. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that means that while long ago God consecrated us, set his people apart, using external means, circumcision, the law, sacrifices, the temple, <clears throat> today God purifies his people for his purposes internally by changing our hearts. He changes our hearts. 
This is the day that Israel had always longed for, been foretold by the prophet Ezekiel. God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Not just call you to walk in them. Listen, long ago, God had always called people to walk in his statutes. I called you to do it. I gave you the law. I gave you even a way to make it up when you screwed up. Sacrifices. You failed to even do that right. But on this day, the day of your salvation, I, God, will actually cause your obedience. Not by turning you into robots and programming you to make you obey orders, but by imputing the righteousness of Christ to you. That's how he causes you to follow his commands. Because you don't actually do it, but Jesus did in your place, and then he traded his righteousness for your unrighteousness. It's imputed into you. Because he gave you a new heart. He performed open heart surgery. He took out your sin-filled heart of stone and darkness and transplanted into you a new heart, a pure heart filled with God's own spirit, filled with Jesus. On that day, God says, you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and cleanse you from all your iniquities, your sin. That's what Jesus has done for you. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Titus 3, 5 through 7, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, I told you last week, justified means being declared righteous, not being righteous. No one was righteous, no, not one. But by being deemed righteous, by virtue of Jesus' imputed borrowed, given righteousness to you by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the good news. But why does he do it? Why does God cleanse us, save us, justify us, wash, regenerate, renew us? He does it, he tells us, he purifies us for a purpose. It's in order to serve him by blessing others. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 says this. For if the blood of goats and bulls in the Old Testament, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, if even the Old Testament animal sacrifices could purify our flesh, could atone for our sins, atonement, kafar in Hebrew, means to cover over our sin in order to allow us back once again into relationship with God, God's presence, then how much more will Jesus' sacrifice, his perfect, precious blood that now not just covers over, but actually removes sin. As, uh, 
thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, as we sang. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your sins from you in Christ Jesus. How much more so now that you don't even have to think about your sin anymore because of Jesus, how much more so can you now, he says, serve the living God. He did it for a purpose. He, he purified your conscience so you could serve the living God. Friends, this is why we were created. We all love Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I mean, right after John three sixteen, might have been the, the next verse you memorized, some of you. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works. It's a free gift of God. Not by your own merit, so that no one may boast. We all know it and love it. Sometimes we fail to read on to verse 10 and remember why God did it. Why did he save us? Why did he create us in the first place? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand before the foundation of the world not only did he call you before the foundation of the world he created all the good works that he wanted you to do that he was calling you to do the reason he was saving you he created those before the foundation of the world too that we should walk in them God created us and he consecrates us and he calls us for good works to be a blessing to all peoples even your salvation is not just about you. Do you get that? He saves you to serve him. And do you know the very best work that you can do, the very best way that you can serve God, the greatest blessing that you can be to others, it's to tell them about this amazing God who called and consecrated you in Christ so that they too might have the opportunity to know him and to be called by him and to be changed by him and be saved by him. That's the best thing you can do. Listen, my, my dad was a physician for 30, 40 years. He saved lots of people's lives. And guess what? They died 10 years later. 20 years, they're they're going to die 10 years from now. Every single one of them physically will die again. I'm not saying don't be a physician. I'm just saying the greatest calling on my dad's life is not to save people's physical lives. It's to tell people about Jesus so they can be with him forever in heaven. That's the greatest calling on your life. I don't know why, what you do, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, but I know why you were made. You were made to tell people about Jesus. That's why you're here. God wants to use you. He is willing to use you to save others. What an honor. What an honor and what a joy. Have any of you had the, the joy, the blessing of being able to, to lead someone to Christ, introduce him to them? Anyone? Praise God. I mean, if you have, you know, you know it in your heart. You know it. There is no greater joy, no greater blessing in life than knowing that God used you in spite of you, in spite of how wicked, what a wicked sinner you are. God used even you to share his love in Jesus with another sinner and save them. That's amazing. In closing, quickly, let me tell you why God's plan is so beautiful. 
It's beautiful that God calls us because it means that God gets all the glory and it means that God's got you. If you chose God, then you would get the glory. Now, what a wise and pious person you must be for choosing God. Good choice. No, since God chose you, he gets all the glory. And friends, God deserves all the glory. Yeah, you want him to get the glory. Moreover, God's sovereign election of you means that God will also keep you because God keeps those whom he calls. It's a promise in his word. If you chose God, then you could just as easily choose to walk away at some point down the road. And in your sin, you would, probably tomorrow, probably today, later today. You're that sinful. You would stop choosing him. But because, that's because you and I change our minds all the time, don't we? We, we, we flip-flop and, and change choices all the time. But God is not like man that he should change his mind. Numbers 23, 19. Jesus said, I give my sheep eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a promise. He keeps you. Secondly, it's beautiful that God consecrates you because it means that God forgave us and he restores us. He forgave us. He purified us. He washed us. Sin had left a crimson stain. He, Jesus washed it white as snow. You are forgiven. Past tense. It is finished. It's all been done on the cross. Once and for all, Jesus forgave you. Praise God. But not only that, he is currently, progressively restoring us back to the very purpose for which we were created. Listen, my dad could have parked the car, come in, helped us sweep up the mess, even forgiven the offense, showed us grace. But guess what? The garage is still dark. There's still a light that's been broken that needs to get replaced. Jesus replaced the light for you. He replaced the light in you. You were made in the image of God to shine, to be a reflection, a prism of God's glory shining through you and, and it was broken by sin. Jesus not only puts the pieces back together, not only forgives you, but he's restoring you back into the purpose for which you were created. It's a beautiful thing. And lastly, he then unleashes you. <laughs> he's given you a new heart, his own heart, a selfless heart of service for God and others, and then he unleashes you, that new heart on the world, to love people and to bless them. And that's so beautiful because it both humbles us even as it exalts us. And here's what I mean by that. It ought to humble us because it means that this life isn't all about me. Right? If it, I told you already, even my salvation isn't all about me. God has saved me for service to the world. Contrary to what my sin and our society try and convince me of every single day, I am not the center of the universe. You are not the center of the universe. And friends, isn't that such a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing? Let's, let's be honest, no offense. What a sad and small universe that would be. Really? I mean, if you were the center of it all, if all of this existed for you, revolved around you, the way that most of us kind of default, were born and, and live most of the time, isn't that such a sad and small... Don't you want to be caught up into something so much bigger and better than that? Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity 
in the hearts of men. We want so much more than like whatever your boring nine to five is. Don't you want more than that? Your little kingdom that you spend most of your time worried about? We want to be part of something bigger, and you, you are, or at least you can be this morning. Jesus is inviting you to be this morning. It humbles us. By the way, that would also be a lot of pressure on you. It's a lot of pressure to be the center of the universe. Praise God, you don't have to be. He is. It humbles us in the best way possible because it paradoxically exalts us at the same time. It gives us honor and glory and dignity as image bearers because God uses nobodies to tell everybody all about somebody who saved you. That's why you're here. That God would you, you know, David said, who, what is man that you are mindful of him? Not just mindful of us, that God uses us. Do you get that? Do we get that, church? We are God's plan A of salvation for the world, and there ain't a plan B. Like if we don't go and tell them, Nobody is. They're not reading the Bible. We're the plan. That's humbling, but it's also that's, that, how amazing that God would use someone like me to accomplish his plan of redemption for the entire world. And it's all because of Jesus. Do you know him this morning? Have you been caught up in something bigger than whatever little kingdom you've been playing in for years? Has he called you? Maybe he's calling you this morning. Will you answer his call? Be purified by him, cleansed of all your sin for the purpose of serving the living God. There's no greater calling in the world. Will you answer the call this morning? Let's pray.